The bread of this podcast hot dog features Jeff Snyder putting into context how far behind the times monetary authorities are and that all may not be as it seems with the appreciating Chinese currency. But the middle, the wiener if you will, is about the unit root. But please, before you throw your device across the room in disgust rather than listen to yet another podcast about monomial equations and non-stationary processes, realize that it's all about econometricians assuming economies do not suffer permanent shocks. The assumption that an economy must experience a recession and a recovery. A 1993 paper by Milton Friedman averred the data showed this is how economies operated, and indeed they did in the post-World War II experience. Friedman referenced an earlier work of his from 1964 with data that stretched over a longer period that also showed this. And indeed, the 1879 to 1961 period does, as long as you exclude the war cycles and 1945 to 1949 because, as Friedman put it, of their special characteristics. So, if your podcaster understands this correctly, if you exclude permanent shocks and data discontinuity, then one is welcome to assume no permanent shocks. Now, your podcaster is admittedly missing something here. For one, he's missing econometricians' razor-sharp intelligence. Second, he hasn't won a Nobel in economics. Not yet, at least. The cost of this lacuna is that shoelaces give him trouble. All his trainers and loafers have Velcro. Simultaneous gum chewing and walking results in emergency trips to the dentist. And hot dogs are eaten with the bun in one hand and the dog in the other. But the benefit of not having a towering intelligence is not falling prey to hubris in believing intricate mathematics model out permanent shocks in believing that it can go back to the way it was. The year 2008 was a permanent break, like 1914, like 1929, like 1945. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 32 of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am talking to the head of global research, the chief investment officer, not just of Alhambra Investments, but maybe all financial firms. Jeff Snyder, good to talk to you. Yeah, I think you're overselling me a bit, Emmanuel. (laughs) (laughs) What am I supposed to say? You've left me speechless already. We just started. Oh, geez. Well, that's a new record. Good. Audience, write that down. Only 30 seconds in. So that's pretty good. What is the audience going to learn about in today's show? The audience is going to learn about how far behind the times the monetary technocrats and the authorities are when it comes to the monetary order. And that monetary order helps determine how your savings and your investments are doing. So it's good to know. All right, we're going to turn to an article that's been published today, uh, the 23rd of October at Real Clear Markets. And the title is Central Banks Trying to Create Inflation is an Old Laugh Line. 
And I'm laughing because, Jeff, you don't pick the titles. So this is the first time you're hearing what the article is called. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's, it, we don't spend a whole lot of time on inflation in the article. But it's, as you pointed out, it's mostly about you know, the history behind where we got and uh, what, are, what are authorities trying to do to try to catch up with what is really a half century of undiscovered monetary territory. And really, I think that's the point. It's not really undiscovered. It's only undiscovered in, official, in the official sense, in traditional definition. By and large, there is a body of scholarship that has been sort of lost. I almost feel like we're kind of like monetary archaeologists going back into history and digging up all of these useful nuggets of wisdom that, you know, that, that, that showed up or that were created, what, four or five decades ago, people who were back in the 1970s and even the early 80s who were more attuned to what was going on. And therefore, ironically, somebody in 1979, for example, probably knew more about 2020 than anybody, any official anyway, in 2020 could, could be. And like any good movie of archaeologists, I guess I'm thinking of uh, Indiana Jones here. We're going to start in the middle of the story and then work our way backwards and forwards to reveal the whole plot to the audience. And you do that by picking three months, May 2018, September 2019, and March 2020. And like a good movie, you start in the middle, September 2019, in that article. What happened in September 2019? That was the, the infamous repo rumble, where repo rates jumped in the middle of September. What we, we call around here the September bottleneck that was particularly harsh. And uh, it caused all sorts of problems because, not for one, the Federal Reserve at that time was trying to disquiet or quiet fears that were growing about you know, the economic circumstances in the U.S. and also all sorts of other things that were happening, including the lower level of bank reserves where people were saying quantitative tightening, too many treasuries, you know, all of these various theories that were being espoused. But they, were, what, what they all shared, the common thread through all of them was that it was obvious there was growing illiquidity in the U.S. dollar system throughout 2019 that nobody could put their finger on. And then all of a sudden, September 2019, it was so obvious that something was wrong, something, something bad was taking place or something abnormal that even the Fed had to get pushed back into the QE business again, and repo operations, all sorts of other things. So let something me, was going on. Let me stop you right there because if Jay Powell was here, and maybe he is, maybe I've got him tied and uh, you know he can't talk, but let's say he is here. You know what he would be saying? He would say it wasn't QE, Jeff. And they made a pointed, explicit public, I don't know, publicity campaign or push to reinforce that message. Jeff, why was it not QE, both for technical and qualitative reasons? Why? Well, for the, first of all, Jay didn't want people to think it was QE because he didn't want people to think the U.S. economy needed a QE. He wanted everybody to be remain calm. They did a couple rate cuts. That was going to balance the situation, the economic situation, get everything back on track. And he worried that if people thought the Fed was being forced into QE against its will, that would, be, that would make people think, wait a minute, something's really wrong here, and then they would act. Remember, monetary policy is all about sentiment, and he didn't want to create a negative sentiment around what was supposed to be a technical issue. As a technical issue, the Federal, Federal Reserve and Jay Powell said, look, this, whatever we got to do, we got to raise the level of bank reserves. Why do we need to raise the level of bank reserves? Because that's what, that's what we do. That's all we do, in fact. And so every, every, every problem that rises, 
the Federal Reserve has to raise the level of bank reserves. That's what they do. And in order to do that, they have to buy assets, which they had conditioned the public before then to believe that buying assets of any kind was quantitative easing. So in order to make this and distinguish this not QE, they decided, well, we're only going to buy treasury bills. We're not going to buy bonds. We're not going to buy notes. We're not going to buy longer-term secur- longer term treasury securities, just the short-term stuff. And really, there's no, uh, there's no, uh, uh, no reason for them to have done that except public relations to try to distinguish this not QE from QEs. Except that in buying treasury bills, it was exactly the worst thing they could have done. It's, I mean, you, you couldn't have picked a worst possible strategy at that particular moment in time. Why? Well, because treasury bills are the primo collateral, the prime of the prime, the pristine of the pristine. Treasury bills are, are what, run, what the repo market really runs on. And what we're, again, that's what, what prompted the Federal Reserve response was a breakdown in repo. But everybody always focuses on the cash side. They never look at the collateral side because, well, nobody's ever told them to look at the collateral. Nobody knows that you need to look at the collateral side. A repo transaction sounds very simple. Someone has cash, someone has collateral. The collateral owner borrows the cash, end of story, right? That's, it's really that simple. But it's not. In fact, there's more stuff going on on the collateral side, which should have become obvious and apparent and open into the daylight of my mainstream thought and convention all the way back in September and October 2008. But it never happened. You know, it was buried under the idea that the, the first global financial crisis was actually something about subprime mortgages. It had nothing to do with repo or repo collateral, when in fact it had everything to do with repo and repo collateral. So, the, Yeah, the repo market, I guess they'll accept any sort of security, but they really, they really like the most liquid one, which is the short-term treasury bills and on-the-run treasuries, which are the most recently issued vintage version of a, of a recent, recent treasury auction. Jeff, that's one of the questions that we receive from the, uh, from the audience is, why? Why? Isn't a treasury bill, note, bond, where, whenever it is, was issued, what, aren't they all as liquid, as valuable? Why is there this difference on the run, off the run? Well, remember, there's, there's literally hundreds of treasury securities. and There is no one 10-year bond. There's specific QSIPs that trade. There's specific issues that trade. Some trade, some don't. So some issues are liquid, some issues just aren't. And when we're talking about the, you know, the treasury market and the way the repo market and what it really factors, all, you know, if you're lending cash to somebody and they're giving you collateral, you have to have a dependable market that tomorrow morning, if you're going to default on the cash loan, I got to liquidate your security. And therefore, I have to be absolutely certain that tomorrow morning, if you default, I can liquidate your security at the price I need to liquidate at. And so if there are parts of the treasury market that don't trade, if there are stale hmm. QCIPs, off-the-run stuff that don't regularly trade, I don't really know if I can sell it at the price I want to sell it at. The market is only, you know, the real market where there's liquidity and actual trading activity, you know, what hits the tape, for example, is only the on, is mostly the on-the-run stuff. Hmm. And so when push comes to shove, you're a repo counterparty. You're holding collateral that you're worried about having to sell. You're going to prioritize the stuff that has a liquid market that you can analyze and look at and say, I, tomorrow morning, I'm almost absolutely positively certain I'll be able to sell it if I need to. That's why the on-the-run stuff is the pristine of pristine, and treasury bills are on the run. 
Exactly. That I interrupted you earlier. Treasury bills, the short-term stuff, the less than one year stuff, is the most liquid. And in, since September of 2019, the Fed was pulling them out of the market. And that's to your point of the, could they have picked a more damaging uh, intervention to the market? No, but Jeff, I thought yeah, we had it's, a it's worth, I mean, look, it was the Fed gave out bank reserves to, to, to the 24 primary dealers and in return took away treasury bill collateral that was used in the repo market. So when we got to March 2020, what was the big problem in March 2020? The lack of treasury bills. And you could see it every, every day that the stock market had its worst day. The, the morning started exactly the same way. In Asian trading, usually, you know, the overnight hours when some of these repo trades started to unwind from the previous day, you'd see treasury bill yields drop to 20, minus 20 base, 25. I remember one time that the four week was at minus 28, which showed you that oh, there was overwhelming demand for treasury bills when the repo trades were being unwound from the previous day, previous day which meant that if you were lucky enough to secure treasury bills, great, you could go on that, that day. If you weren't, that meant fire sales. It meant you know swapping into gold. It meant all sorts of things that would follow onto it. So on the days where the treasury bill yields were ridiculously negative, those were the days in the morning you'd see the stock market sell off by you know five ten percent at the open, whatever it was in some of those days. So there's a there's a there's a connection between the repo market and liquidity through all the financial markets all the way around the world. It's a central point for the financial system globally. And here we had the Fed from September, actually October 2019, up until March 2020, removing the best collateral from the central pivot of the financial system and giving out instead these useless, inert, waste of time bank reserves. Jeff, I thought the Fed had already learned the don't vacuum up short-term treasury securities lesson in 2011. Wasn't that what Operation Twist was all about? And so well, what think, happened? Why did they No, I that? think that was one of the, I don't think they necessarily, I mean, yeah, Operation Twist was about, hey, we need to less treasury bills and uh, we'll buy more treasury bonds. So we'll, we'll let the bills go back in the market. We'll buy more treasury bonds because there are all sorts of problems in collateral. But did they realize, did they learn the lesson as you, as, as you put it? I don't think they actually learned the lesson. I think for them it was more of a, hey, this is a technical issue that we need to look at, and we'll solve it. We'll solve the bigger problem by more QE, which is sentimental effects of getting people to be happy about we're doing something big, no matter what it was. And so, Operation Twist was kind of like a quirk to the overall strategy, which was still QE. And so you get to, to, to the late 2019, and the Fed's thinking. I got to do the strategy. I got to do the sentimental effect. I got to do big buying because I got to raise the level of bank reserves enough so that, that these dealers no longer complain about you know, these, these technical factors in the repo market. And so they did the overall buying, but when they, when, you know, what, what, what was their priorities in that buying? They had to make it a not QE, which meant they focused exclusively on bills at the worst possible time. So the first half of your article is about setting the stage and you discuss three months we just talked about september and march but our first clue and perhaps what we could uh, identify as the kickoff date of the fourth euro dollar crisis was may 29th 2018 can you tell the audience a little bit about that day yeah something about the italian financial minister being fired or sacked or something like that 
No, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what the media speculated on. But what happened that day was you had a buying panic in Treasury and German bond markets. And I think a little bit in JGBs too. So the, global, the top tier of the global sovereign bonds were hugely bid. Remember May 2019, or May 2018, excuse me, this was inflation, economic growth, you know, all the things that were supposed to lead to interest rates going significantly higher. And we had this day where interest rates fell sharply. I mean, the 10-year treasury, you know, I forget how much it was, but it was, it was a significant reduction in yields all at once. And oh, by the way, before that, leading up to that, we had this dollar spike. So you had the combination of factors that were looking at, yeah, these things, there's, there's some really bad stuff going on in the global dollar system. Then it erupted in this May 29th thing, which was because it was buying panic in treasuries, you're immediately, you know, your senses say something's going on in the collateral side of repo. And there was all sorts of stuff before then, too, that said something's going on. There's a liquidity. But May 29th was when it became sort of real. It became something from out of the shadows into something, you know, into something that you could actually put your finger on. So in a word, what links all three months is collateral. In three words, what links all three is securities financing transactions. And if I would add a few more words, it would be, quote, in particular, a lack of transparency in the use of security financing transactions has prevented regulators and supervisors as well as investors from correctly assessing and monitoring the respective bank-like risks and level of interconnectedness in the financial system. Jeff, tell the audience where that quote comes from. It comes from the European Union in November of 2015. And that was authorizing a data collection process, which is still finally getting going this year. But essentially, it's, it's a culmination of many years uh, after, in the aftermath of the great financial crisis where regulators, authorities, politicians, whatever, whatever official part of the sector you want to talk about, what they finally realized is that, you know, there's stuff going on here that we really don't have a good handle on. And it's become very obvious through repeated action this stuff is important. Maybe we should pay attention to it. And as you said, SFT, Securities Financing Transaction. What is that? It's exactly what we just said, and we're talking about the last part of 2019 and into 2020. It's collateral, securities lending, all the stuff that's interesting and strange and weird and complex about the collateral side is that banks engage. It's not a repo transaction. It's not simply you have cash, I have collateral, we get together. It's oftentimes I have questionable collateral or maybe I don't have collateral at all. And so I go to a bank and I borrow it and I transform it. And I do repledge it. You know, the bank repledges it. There's maybe even rehypothecation as, as contentious as that issue is. There's all sorts of stuff going on on the collateral side that nobody pays attention to, even though, again, back in 2008, that was the most prominent feature of the first global financial crisis. And what you, the quote that, we, that you just read, Emil, says is that, look, we realize it. Something about SFT is very important. We probably, it's interconnected this. There's, you know, lack of, lack of ability to analyze all of these factors. You know, the stuff that we just talked about in, in 2019 and 2020, the European Union was saying, we're going to come up with a law, a regulation that says we need to study this problem. And so it's on the one hand, it sounds like it's good news. Finally, someone is saying, this is very important. We need to study it. And so that's good. That's great. I'm happy. I'm thrilled. I think this is what we've wanted to hear. 
But you make the point in the article, and I think this is the larger point of our discussion here, is that this is taking a real long time. That quote I read was from 2015 from the regulation, but it was first introduced or asked for public comment in 2014. And then you also introduced a pair of uh, academic researchers who were doing research in this area. And it was uh, the, the paper that you referenced is called Innovation in the International Financial Markets. And this was written a long, long, long time ago. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, November 2015, only in Europe, the European Union says, let's look at SFTs. When the break, the first real major breakdown in them, you can go back to March 2008, but really, you know, September and October of 2008, there's a seven-year gap there, <laughs> seven years. And finally, the European regulators are saying, hey, you know, maybe we should get serious about this. I mean, that's the lack of urgency is what, what really stands out here is that why mm -hmm. weren't they doing this in November of 2008? You know, where was the SFT regulations back then? And so you're already starting to wonder, okay, what's really going on here? Are they really serious about it? I mean, yeah, it's a serious issue, but are they taking it serious enough where it's, 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 a, you know, it's a front burner thing? And it's obviously not because, again, as we just went through 2018, 2019, and 2020, here we have the Federal Reserve paying no attention to SFTs, in fact, making the SFT side of things that much more harder and difficult so that when we got to March 2020, it was the worst possible case. So, yes. The Europeans in 2015, and before then, they had been working toward this. You know, that's, I think that's the funny thing, too, is November 2015, they, start the, you know, they, they put the regulation in place. Well, when did they start signing up and collecting data? This year, April of 2020, they finally signed up for what are called TRs, which are trade repositories, which are in the securities lending business. And so they're only in 2020s beginning to collect data in a pilot program on the SFT side of things. And oh, by the way, you know, the larger point too, and what we're gonna get, what we're gonna talk about next is really about the trade, the, what's cleared on trade repositories, the amount of securities lending and securities financing transactions that goes on centrally cleared agencies like that or, or exchanges is very small. Most of what takes place in the repo market as well as the larger Euro dollar market is simply bilateral transactions or sometimes trilateral transactions between banks that never appear any statement, any tape, anything. So even now, the European after 13 years, after a dozen years since the first, you know, the big breakdown in September and October 2008, only the Europeans are looking at SFTs in only a minimal way. So a dozen years later, is it really? I mean, yes, it's it's kind of good that they're looking at it. And they they realize it's important, but are they really doing anything? significant towards identifying and uncovering all the real bad, potentially negative stuff that goes on on the SFT side. And as you were saying, you know, what we're really talking about here is it's not really just a dozen years. This is a 50, 60, 70 year old story. And, and you bring up an example of uh, a couple of researchers who wrote a very interesting paper in 1981 saying, look at this, look what is happening. Look at this proliferation of products. Uh, and, but of yeah, course, that just... The proliferation of products, I use that specific term, obviously, people might be familiar. But for those who aren't, in June of 2000, Alan Greenspan in an FOMC meeting discussing the Humphrey Hawkins, uh, you know, the uh, 
the Full Employment Act of 1978 requirement to, to, to produce money supply targets, they argued that they shouldn't have to do it anymore because they couldn't define money. Therefore, they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't define it, that they couldn't measure it. And what he said was, one of the reasons, obviously, is that the proliferation of products has been so extraordinary that the true underlying mix of, our mon of money in our money and near money data is continuously changing. So a decision to base policy on measures of money presupposes that we can locate money. And that has become an increasingly dubious proposition. And that was June of 2000. But, you know, what Greenspan was talking about was not something that took place in 1999 or 1998. This was this proliferation of products actually happened starting in the 50s. And it really was the 1960s and the 1970s, as this paper you pointed out by, uh, I think his name was Gunter Duffy and Ian Giddy. They published in 1981. It was a really good paper that went through a lot of different financial innovation. And it wasn't just the stuff that, that stuck. They went through you know, a lot of things that failed. They said, look, banks experimented with this and they experimented with that. And here's the stuff that has stuck around by 1981. So Greenspan's proliferation of products in June of 2000 that had erased the Fed's ability to define and, and base money supply or monetary policy on money took place back in the 60s and 70s, which is Absolutely mind-boggling that the central banker would, would, say, would say something like that and how that actually related to how history developed over that period of time. Of course, eventually leading to 2007, 2008, and its aftermath. Jeff, this, this whole article came to us uh, by, from an audience member. Uh, he sent along a message that the European Securities Market Authority was gathering this data and then you dove into it and explained that, you know, it looks good on the surface, but really it's seven years after they first kicked off the, the initial trial or they brought it up. And then seven years after actually the crisis and 30, 40, 50, 60 years after the horse has been let out of the barn. So audience, yeah, if I, you, yeah, what, I want to, what I want to say is, you know, that's, I think that's absolutely fantastic that we have an audience that is, that pays attention enough, that knows enough to, 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 to flag these kinds of things and absolutely encourage them to send, it, send, them, send these kinds of things to us because, you know, they're worth discussing. They're worth talking about. Even, in, you know, we don't have to get into necessarily all the details, though we could, but really, you know, just in the big picture sense, you know, our, our major problem here is that we have monetary authorities who have no authority on money because they don't even know what the hell it is. They don't know what goes on in the monetary system. And when you say something like that, people who aren't familiar with this stuff immediately think you're crazy. Like, well, how can, how can Jay Powell not know what goes on in the repo market? Well, it's, it should be obvious to you by now that he doesn't. I mean, stripping treasury bills from the repo market in the aftermath of September 2019 was demonstrably not just, you know, I'm not just making, this is not my opinion. It's demonstrably the worst thing the guy could have done. And the only reason he would have done that is because unlike in Europe where they're, they're paying attention to SFTs, the Federal Reserve pays no attention to this stuff. They don't care. They believe in their sentimental effects of raising the level of bank reserves rather than any kind of monetary competency, which is the big problem here because we have a monetary breakdown. You can't fix it with a puppet show and a fairy tale. You actually need some competence. And at least... You know, if you want to look at it positively, at least the Europeans are thinking along those lines, but yet not really doing it with a sense of urgency that seems to be required. So our financial order is ostensibly looked over by the central bankers, the monetary technocrats. 
And in this segment of the show, we're now going to examine one of their key assumptions about how the world works. And that will help us, you know, kind of determine whether we should continue looking to them for guidance. And it's a little bit mathematical, but it's an article that you posted at Alhambra Investments. And it was on the 21st of October, and it's called The Unit Root of the Missing Monetary Monomial. And uh, this came to us again from a listener. And uh, that listener, if you can, you can find him on Twitter, at Itrismegistus. Uh, we start by introducing Milton Friedman's explanation in 1964, where he introduced the plucking model, which is one that you often reference, Jeff. And I have for years not known what it was until this article. So, Jeff, what is the plucking model? Well, in the post-war era, which we'll get back to that key distinction, but in the post-war era, we only have recessions. What happened to depressions? Well, never mind. In the post-war era, we have these recessions. And what are recessions? There seem to be nothing more than temporary deviations from a solid or a dependable trend, right? The economy falls off. It has a recession. Bad things happen. But then it, goes, it has a recovery and it goes right back to normal. That's what Milton Friedman called it, the plucking model, because he said it was like a guitar string. You pull the string down from a board and then let it go. It goes right back up to trend again. And that's what we've seen. And again, not just in the United States, but across the developed world, recessions always followed this pattern. We'd have a temporary shock, a recession, and then a recovery that always, that always behaved in symmetrical fashion, which was that in keeping with trend, the steeper the decline, the steeper the recovery, because you had to get back on trend. And so in terms of econometrics and modeling this stuff, what you would then do is say, look, our optimal forecast regime is to always, always forecast trend growth. And, that, and then by definition, therefore, if we're always going to forecast trend growth, trend growth over the intermediate and longer terms, then there can, no, there can never be anything but temporary shocks or temporary recessions. Nothing ever changes the trend. It's only temporary deviations from that trend. And he proposed this in 1964 and then updated it in 1993 and had anything changed in the intervening years? No, in fact, in 1993, what Friedman said is the evidence is, is overwhelmingly and unequivocal. This plucking model works. It works everywhere. And 1993 was not a, an accident either. We had just experienced another post-war recession in 1990, 1991. Not just the U.S., but there were, you know, again, other places around the world had experienced recessions too. And again, the plucking model seemed to be work, seemed to work. It seemed to, seemed to hold which was nothing more than a temporary deviation. Remember, 1989, 1990, we had a pretty severe financial shock, a severe banking shock in the form of the SNL crisis. And yet, even though, and back then, if, if people who are, are my age probably remember, there was there were a lot of fears, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, about the SNL crisis turning into another Great Depression. And so the fact that it didn't happen, we didn't have a depression in 1990, Cause Milton Friedman and other economists to say, yeah, this, this, this is how it is nowadays. There's a trend growth in the economy obeys trend over time, and it only ever deviates in temporary fashion. And for people that don't know this, but uh, the number of bank failures, if you look at it on a total basis or on a relative basis, we hadn't seen anything like it in the United States since the 1930s. So you might be thinking, why would there be a depression in it after the end of the 1980s? 
there were there was a bank a running bank failure because it had started at the beginning of the 80s with the LDC crisis and then yeah, it, it, the, the SNL yeah. crisis really spanned that last half of the from 1985 to 1989 it was kind of like it went parabolically but the the funny thing is nobody ever stopped to really wonder why didn't the banking crisis lead to a depression what was different about that one compared to the say the 1930s and you know it's you never got into the monetary system, never got into the proliferation of financial products. Maybe it's not banks, maybe it's money that causes depressions. And that, again, going back to our first segment, the, the you know, economists, central bankers, everybody had taken their eye off the ball of the monetary system because of this proliferation of products. And by the way, repo markets and repo transactions played a key role in the S&L crisis too, believe it or not. And so... In many ways, the SNL was a rehearsal for the systemic breakdown in 2007 and 2008. So wouldn't it have been nice had authorities stopped thinking in temporary terms and start thinking in monetary terms, even Milton Friedman, if they had been thinking in the 80s and 90s about the monetary system well in advance of what would happen in the middle 2000s? And its irony here is that in that 1964 paper, at the beginning of it, at the introduction, Milton Friedman discusses the fact uh, and he and he takes to tasks economists during the 30s 40s and 50s for taking their eye off the money and yet I suppose it's fair to say that he did as well in the 90s especially which we yeah. discuss with Japan his quote was the Keynesian revolution in economic thought in the mid-1930s produced a radical change in the attention paid by economists to money the fact that the Federal Reserve System did not stem the Great Depression was interpreted as meaning that money was of secondary importance. Sound familiar, right? At most, a reflection of changes occurring elsewhere. Though this conclusion was a non sequitur, as he proved, it was nonetheless potent. And it was all the more re readily accepted because Keynes provided an intellectually appealing alternative explanation of the Great Depression. So for nearly two decades thereafter, remember, Friedman was saying this in the early 1960s, just after a monetary history had come out, money became a minor matter in most academic economic writing and research to be mentioned almost as an afterthought. And economic research on money was notable by its absence. And that was absolutely true of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and 2010s. As we said before, the official sectors only really starting to you know dip their toe into things like SFTs recently. So for a long you know this proliferation of products era, the monetary system was never even really really um, studied or even thought about because you know economics in particular went into Keynes back into Keynesian mode or neo-Keynesian mode as they like to say nowadays. Well, Jeff, I know before the show we discussed that we don't want to get too much in the math, but you do throw in several terms in here too into just your title so i'm going to pull up some graphs and we'll just touch on the math lightly to give people an idea of what is going on so first maybe if you want to tell people why the math is important but then secondly let's define what a unit root is and jeff and i ask you to keep it professional and keep the innuendos to a minimum because this is a family show and there are probably children watching yeah, I usually leave the innuendos to you, Emil, for that reason. You're, better, you're much better at them anyway. <laughs> but, you know, what we have to understand is that economics is really econometrics. That's how economists operate. They have statistical models they've created, and these statistical models reflect their ideology and beliefs. 
And as we just stated, their ideology and beliefs over the you know, post-war era up until 2007, even after 2007, but up until 2007 was this idea that an economic shock could never be anything more than temporary because that's what all the evidence said. The evidence said that's what it is. And so they encoded this, this evidence and this belief into econometrics. And when you, you know, when you look at statistical models, particularly in a time series, that means you can never have something called a unit root. And the root is the A1 variable that's, uh, that's, that's shown on the screen here in the formula, which is what I've created is, is essentially a very, very oversimplified model for the output gap. And so in this model, our constant C is zero because the output gap is supposed to be zero, right? The economy is supposed to always operating at trend. Mm -hmm. and so how does a time series model develop where we believe that we're always at trend? That means that the unit, the root, A1, can never be a unit, which is the, number, which is the value of one. And all that means is that as long, so long as A1 is less than one, then the monetary shock, or, what, or not even monet, just a, the economic shock that created the depression or that created the recession will go away over time. And how fast it goes away is depends upon how, you know, how, how much, how big or how significant you, mo uh, you model the, the root. And so at, at even just an arbitrary 0.5, what you see is, again, it looks a lot like Milton Friedman's pluck, plucking model because it is essentially saying that over time, the economy will experience shocks, but those shocks will only ever be temporary. The, unit, the root is always less than one. Okay, that makes perfect sense. We see that in various economic accounts. We see that in the plucking model. And we see that in post-World War II recessions. Recession, recovery, back to trend. Okay. Yeah, so if you're going to model the way an economy behaves, this is how you would do it, right? Because that's, that's what looks like all well, the other. I don't know if I would, Jeff, because my data set is post-World War II. So... I would want a lot more data. What happens if we introduce the unit root? What happens then? And now I'm, I'm showing a new graph. Yeah, there's a couple different uh, implications of a unit root. The unit root, unit simply refers to the value of one. When you stick the number one in as, as a root here in our output gap, what that means is the output gap is, becomes permanent, as you can see in the blue dotted line. And that's something that, you know, it's, it means that the, First of all, in terms of econometrics and statistics, it's something that's called a non-stationary or different stationary model or the different stationary uh, equation or whatever you want to call it. And that means that, you know, we can't, it's, it's unpredictable. Our model is unpredictable because it leads to these jumps that completely change the distribution. The, I mean, the mean, the average, the standard deviation are all different past when you, when you get past the shock because the unit root is the root is actually at a unit, and so it means that you know if for an econometric model, even the possibility of a unit root for any of these functions means that you have an unpredictable model. You can't predict the future because once these things show up, it creates a completely different path for the economy. And so, the idea that that we can reject that possibility has has been based upon, as you pointed out, Emil post-war economic history and mostly in industrial, industrialized country, countries and economies. And, well, I guess, let me show a few more graphs. Basically, we have seen a unit root-like uh, phenomenon happen in real GDP in the United States, the uh, labor force participation, and uh, what else? In Europe, the real GDP. 
And I guess my question to you is, Jeff, why on earth, and I mean that literally, why on this planet, since the Garden of Eden, would people assume the economy doesn't experience shocks? You can open any one of the books behind me, and they're all about shocks and phase transitions and about entering new paradigms. Enough, it doesn't happen every year, but you know, I would say at least once a century, twice a century. Yeah, that, what we're really talking about here is the intersection between econometrics and the mathematics and the difficulties that are, that, that are just I mean, inherent in trying to model a complex system, right? Because you're, you're, you're trying to assign simple variables and simple equations to explain a very dynamic world, as you just pointed out. We live in a dynamic world that changes all the time. And oh, by the way, another limitation that you have in trying to model this kind of stuff is you immediately assume that the future has to look like the past because that's where you're drawing all the data from, right? You're looking at the post-war history and saying, this is the future is going to look like this 40-year period in history. When that's already an assumption, that's not an established fact. You're making an assumption that this 40-year period in time, which, you know, between 1940s and 1980s, but you can extend that all the way up to 2007. So the 60-year period in time, you're assuming that, that is, the future is only is going to look like only that 60 years. And so it's a mathematical problem, but it's also a real-world issue too, right? Because as you said, as you're pointing out, it seems like why would shocks only be temporary? You can think about shocks in two ways too. It's not just negative shocks like you see in recession. There's also mm-hmm. positive shocks. Mm-hmm. Innovation. You know, we live in a – we've seen it you know, in our daily lives. Our daily lives have changed dramatically over the last 20 years and they're permanent changes. They're not, they're not temporary changes. So we have a problem with econometrics, but yet economics and economics depends so much on econometrics and the statistics that it's almost, you know, it gets to the point where they believe in the numbers and their models more than they believe in their lying eyes because they, that's how the, the, the discipline has developed and they don't want to, they don't want to give up on these models. And so if you introduce a unit root in any of these kinds of variables, it just destroys their, their econometrics. And so they've kind of gotten to a situation where it becomes self-reinforcing and self-reinforcing self-delusion, right? We have a 60-year period in history where we don't see these, these permanent shocks. Therefore, that lets, that lets us justify how our mathematics appear to work. So we're going to assume that the future can only look like this one 60-year period in history. And then, of course, what happens in August of 2007, we start, we get a financial crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen in 80 years, which is, of course, outside of that 60-year window. And, oh, my God, now it looks like we see these unit root or, you know, these permanent shock type behaviors all across the world. So we have to go back and think, well, maybe that 60-year period in history wasn't universal. It didn't reflect everything, that, every possibility. I'm thinking about, you know, ergodicity and things like that. You know, maybe the average of what happened or the, the, the conditionals that happened in that 60-year period history just pertain to that 60-year period in history and that we're in a different paradigm. And, you know, the fact that it's not, it wasn't predictable and it blows up all of the economist models, too bad. The, that's the way the world is. And if economists are in perfectly intent on holding to this idea that there can only be temporary shocks because of this one period in history, then they're always going to be wrong. And they have been wrong over the last 13 years because of it. All right, Jeff. Let us move on to our last article. 
And this one is about very important neighborhood in the Euro dollar system, in the Euro dollar system. And that is the Asian neighborhood. And if you were to pick any one particular measure that says, how is the Euro dollar system doing? Eh? You could say it would be the reference rate, the US dollar Chinese uh, currency exchange rate. And right now it's rising. And that's a good sign, Jeff. When the yuan is getting stronger, that's a good sign for the euro dollar system. However, in this article, you say not so fast. We've seen this before in similar circumstances and you're holding back judgment before celebrating. Yeah, you're right. CNY could be a really good good uh, indicator of what's going on. It could be, but it requires a little bit of corroboration because oh, those Chinese, they tend to be very sneaky and, and uh, uh, clandestine in how they operate. And unlike most everywhere else around the world who want to be sneaky and clandestine, other places around the world at least report their clandestine and sneaky activities where the Chinese don't. And then, by the way, the Chinese have access to pretty much anything anywhere in, within their reach, which includes places like Hong Kong. So the potential for them doing sneaky clandestine things is through the roof where it isn't you know, necessarily everywhere else. So, yes, CNY rising, that, that's, that's a reflation indication, but it has to have some kind of corroboration behind it. Otherwise, we, we get really suspicious. One of those items would be an increase in foreign exchange reserves on the balance sheet of the People's Bank of China. Is that true? Did we see that previously? Are we seeing that now corresponding yeah, with the rise? Let's be clear here what we're talking about. Reflation to me and what our understanding means the dollar system is expanding again, or at least it's expanding at a, at a, at a better rate than it had been during these euro dollar events or your squeezes, global dollar shortages. So if there's more dollars, theoretically, and these are virtual bank liability dollars, they're not, they're not actual physical currency. So if the banking system is expanding the euro dollar system, we would expect those virtual dollars to end up in more people's hands. And where it relates to places like China, we would expect more of those dollars. If there's more of them, they're going to flow into China. That's going to raise the, 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 the currency exchange rate against the dollar. And then they would show up in official as well as private hands because that's the way China works. Um, you know, so we would expect if there is legitimate reflation going on, more dollars in the system, there would be more dollars in the central bank's balance sheet as well as in the official safe pocket. But, and then we're not seeing that this time around, is that correct? Yeah, so if we go back to 2017, which was a reflationary period, that's exactly what we saw. Chinese yuan turned around in early 2017 from, from the depths around seven. And we did, we saw treasuries go on, the tick data confirmed, the PBOC's balance sheet confirmed, the safe data all confirmed that there were dollars flowing into China. And that backed up the idea that the Chinese yuan was rising. However, there were already some, you know, suspicions and indications that that wasn't the only thing that was going on. The Hong Kong dollar, for example, was behaving almost exactly, I mean, almost exactly identically inverse to the Chinese yuan, which you start to wonder, all right, what's really going on there? And then in September 2017, something happened in the early part of that month. Again, we can, we can talk about that some other time, but, you know, Treasury bills, repo, all this stuff came up in early twenty, early September 2017. And oh, by the way, 
Chinese yuan dropped, Hong Kong dollar strengthened and exactly mirrored opposite. And from the rest of the year, from that period forward, the treasuries and the dollars and the, the foreign exchange assets stopped going on into the official hands like we had seen beforehand. However, Chinese yuan, CNY, kept rising. In fact, it rose very quickly between October 2017 and January 2018, which was, if you remember, that was the apex of inflation hysteria, which, sound, I mean, that late 2017 sounds almost exactly like late 2020. It was, you know, store, me, mainstream media stories of inflation were everywhere, central bankers talking positively about how recovery was going to be coming, forceful recovery was coming next year, 2018 in that, case, in that previous case, 2021 in our current case. And then, you know, we have rising Chinese yuan, we have all these things that made it seem like, okay, you know, things are really going in the reflationary direction. But the one thing we didn't have was something corroborating CNY going up. That would have lended uh, more as, uh, evidence to the idea that this reflation was, in turning, was in fact turning out to be inflationary. You did find something interesting in the Treasury International Capital data for Hong Kong for that period, though, didn't you? Yeah, that specific period, that particular four months, you know, December or uh, November 2017, December 2017, and on into 2018, whatever, that period. Um, what we saw from the tick data is that some seemingly out of nowhere, U.S. banks began lending massive amounts of dollars. I think it was about $27 billion, which doesn't sound like a lot, but, it, you know, in the context of what we're talking about, it is. And I think it was an 80% increase in four months. So they were U.S. banks were lending that that many dollars to Hong Kong banks for what? Who the hell knows? But then you start piecing together these this inverse relationship between the Hong Kong dollar and what Chinese what the Chinese officials can do and might be doing in lieu of actual dollar flows onto their balance sheets. And you wonder maybe they were using Hong Kong, which is a much better uh, you know lending opportunity, less risky lending opportunity for U.S. banks than Chinese banks were, especially in 2017. And so it kind of, you know, you wonder if this, this rise in CNY was not something that was engineered through backdoor proxy means, which, by the way, is a legitimate central bank tactic and strategy. It's been practiced all over the world. You don't want to spend your reserves if you don't have to, because, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to paint a big target on your back. And do we see anything at all that's similar today because let's bring this up to the present the cny is rising there's concern about inflation but what don't we see right we don't see an increase in foreign exchange reserves anything in the tick data i know that's a couple months behind anything in the hong kong currency or are you just raising the subject to say you know be wary don't buy in just yet yeah, well, I think it's 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 even more than that. I mean, the the parallels to 2017 are you know, hey, inflation hysteria because it's begin it's getting hysterical in late 2020 again. People are you know, for reasons I can't fathom, are absolutely convinced that we're going to have an inflationary breakout, and without realizing we've gone through this very kind of same situation just three years ago. And one of the one of the pieces behind it is CNY. So if we look at CNY. You know, you and I, Emil, in Eurodollar University, in the Eurodollar topic, we've been looking at the Chinese bank, you know, the People's Bank of China balance sheet, the safe data, the tick data, all these other things for a lot longer than just the last few months. And it's absolutely curious that we don't see dollars flowing into China in their official hands. 
which they would be if there was anything like a reflation going on. So the fact that CNY is rising isn't necessarily itself reflective of anything other than something else. And we don't see the kinds of, of, of reflection, or we don't see the kinds of evidence and corroboration that would suggest this is any different than it was in 2017 and 2018. And then when we look around the rest of the Eurodollar system, there's even less positive now than there was three years ago. In fact, it, it really looks like that CNY's increase is a, maybe the only thing that looks consistent with a reflationary or inflationary episode. And so there are major questions about CNY. Obviously, there are major questions about the dollar system. And, and we have to wonder, do people not pay attention to these? Things? I mean, this happened three years ago, but because you know most people don't, they don't know they should pay attention to the dollar system. They don't know that there's all this stuff going on behind the scenes. You know, it's what's going on in 2020 to many people seems like it's brand new. That's how you end the article, Jeff. Let me read this to the audience because I thought it was very powerful. Quote, unfortunately, everything I've just written has been hidden from the public's view. While it may turn out that we're repeating history, for most people, they'd never know it. That's the corruption. Right. And that's what, you know, goes back to what we talked to and talked about in the for earlier segments. You know, in a lot of cases, monetary authorities and central bank, they don't even know they should be paying attention to this stuff. They're still catching up on these financial products. You know, the proliferation of products, as Alan Greenspan talked about two decades ago, that took place three and four decades before he even talked about it. They're still catching up on what happened over the last half century. And so that's why we stay in the dark and why people don't realize these things take place and, and why they're important is because, you know, economics has done such a bad job of paying attention to the monetary system that nobody even knows what, what really goes on in them. All right, Jeff. Well, this show was a great one. And dear audience, if you're enjoying it as well, this show was brought to you with the support of viewers like you. And if you're interested in showing your support, you can do so by calling 1-800-555-555-5551. And volunteers are standing by to take your donation to help support this show and other programs like it on this channel. Presently, we are only accepting uh, uncut, unpolished gems that are easily fenced, but maybe in the future we'll accept something more. Jeff, thank you very much for a great show. I will talk to you again next week. Okay, Emil, take care.